Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are continuing to record this podcast remotely for the safety of our guests and our team. So, on with the show. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions, usually washed down with three glasses of wine, but not today. We're going to have to park the wine because my guest is in the middle of a busy working day in his office at the Houses of Parliament. He is a man of many firsts. He was the first black British cathedral chorister and then became the first black Briton to attend Harvard where he studied law. Along the way there, through the network of uh, former graduates, he became firm friends with Barack Obama. After a stint working successfully as a lawyer on the West Coast, he returned to the UK and became the youngest member of parliament at the age of 27. He's been the Labour MP for Tottenham for the last 20 years and during his time in the party has served under Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and now Keir Starmer, where he currently works as Shadow Secretary of State for Justice and Shadow Lord Chancellor. Born in 1972 in Archway, North London, to Guyanese parents, he was one of four siblings raised solely by his mother after his father left the family when he was just 12 years old. It was around this time that his life started to change dramatically. As a talented chorister, he was awarded a choral scholarship to sing at Peterborough Cathedral and attend the King's School there, a state-funded boarding school which opened up a whole new world of opportunity to him. A passionate campaigner for justice, he's never shied of using his place at the top political table to be a loud and challenging voice, namely for the Grenfell community and the Windrush generation. Married to artist Nicola Green, the couple share three children and live in North London. And this year, he released his second book, Tribes, a hybrid of memoir and essay, which explores the tribalism that shapes our thinking, our society, our politics and our need to belong. I really am fascinated to talk to him. So let's dial up the Right Honourable David Lammy MP. David Lammy, can I just say that I've spent the last seven, eight nights wrapped up in bed with you, reading <laughs> tribes. You've kept that, me up, my friend. You've kept me up. That sounds so cosy. Um, <laughs> and a little bit cheeky. But thank you for buying my book. Thank you for buying my book and reading my book. You know, you, it actually took quite a few years to write because of um, so much was going on, you know, Brexit and all the other things going on there's loads of stuff going a wind rush and stuff lots of things interrupted it and you're sort of writing it and then the most amazing thing is if anybody says 
they bought it, they read it, or All. if you spot someone with it on the tube. Oh, what a thrill that is. That must be. <laughs> because I can see, and you, you'd say that Grenfell and Windrush interrupted the book. I would argue that Grenfell and Windfall informed the book, shaped it, because you can see how your mind is is working and changing. And the, I mean, can I just applaud you for the level of research and referencing in that book? I'm reading it on a Kindle and I'm jumping in and out. I feel like I'm doing A-levels. Well, I, I like books, right? I like books where, non-fiction books, obviously, but the way I write, I, I, I always insist that if my mother is alive, she'd be able to read it or any of my aunts could read it. It's accessible. It's easy to, to, to sort of digest. But I love books where you're, um, you've either got a highlighter pen or you're scribbling in the margin or you're putting a post-it on because they're little yeah. facts and bits of information you want to remember. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of book I try and write, basically. Well, it's kind of part essay, part memoir, really. And I love the way that you knit the two together. And, and there's so much food for thought in this book. What I read in the evenings, I will then sit down at the dinner table the next day with my 12-year-old and we'll talk about stuff. I've got a 12-year-old. I know, we've got children. Well, you've got three children. It's a shame because I don't know if I'm having those kind of conversations with my 12-year-old. So what do you talk about? What do you talk about? Okay, well, in the around the death of George Floyd, it's very hard for um, kids to get their heads around um, how, how to digest this because um, I think that they walk through life without as, as many of the um, isms that we learn to carry in later life. And so we sat down in the first lockdown and I made him watch with me um, Jane Elliott's Brown Eyes, Blue Eyes, which I studied as part of a, I went to night school and, well, not night school, day school and studied to become a counsellor about eight years ago. And that was part of my study. And then I picked up in your book on the red t-shirt, blue t-shirt with primary school students. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Two psychological exercises that just frame very, very succinctly how prejudice is born. So let me just explain that. So you take a group, this is an experiment that's done all the time. You've got a group of primary school kids, let's say you've got 40. You put one group in red shirts, the other group in blue shirts. Um, the kids have known each other. And then after a while, the kids start to separate according to the shirt that they're wearing. And it's the sort of beginnings of tribalism of difference of human behavior and it goes back to um you know being um homo sapiens um walking in the forest and over the hill is a different tribe or a different group of people and they're a threat to you um and they might take the women they might take the food uh but actually over time if you work with the tribe across the hill, you'll get more food. <laughs> that might have different women. But it has to be worked at. It can't just be taken for granted or you fall back to the default, basically. It's, it's a brilliant book. And I can see that it was years in the making. It's um, It reads like a labour of love. Um, and, I, and I hope that you take that as the highest form of compliment. I do, thank you. Um, it, it's so it's important to understand that I wrote this book in part for therapy because when you're writing a, a non-fiction book it's a great way to understand your own mind and how you feel mm. about the world around you and this was a world in which um, I was getting death threats in which hate was rising um, you know I'm pretty prolific on social media on Twitter uh, you just have to look at some of the things that are said um, after the tweets that I write um, and in which for the first time in my life in a really profound way people were saying things like why do you hate Britain so much they were questioning my not just my Britishness but my Englishness um, and so writing about this sort of new tribalism that's in our society was therapy it was sort of soul food for me um, and then, you know, trying to come up with some recommendations and things to focus to wait, wait to deal with it. That's what I found very reassuring is that 
because of the Lamy Review and the responsibilities that sit with you because you are such a campaigner and a voice. That I am I, a campaigner, aren't I? You are. Tireless, <laughs> I would say, David. Passionate. Um, it, it was kind of that, what it was nice is having listened to you for, for years, to d- jump into your book, I understood your processes. I understood how you'd arrived at sometimes what can seem, certainly when it's, you know, distilled into 140 characters, where those views are shaped and where they come from. And I implore anybody uh, in, an, in a digital age where we have such a short attention span, just just, just breathe, read. I can't remember if you're a big tweeter, Kate. Are you a big tweeter? I'm more of an Instagram girl these days. I'll tell you why. Because... Beautiful photos making everyone jealous. No, not so much that. I just, oh. I just find Twitter very toxic. Yes, it is, yeah. It and is. I, I always think of social media as like, if it was a party, would I go? I wouldn't go to a Twitter party. <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. And let me just be clear, I would not be on Twitter were I not a member of Parliament. It's a great way of communicating with your constituents, to some extent with the Westminster Village. Journalists know what you're thinking, what you're up to but it's toxic. I mean, I really, if I lived a different kind of life, I'd never be on it. I just wouldn't be interested. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's, um, I just don't think it brings out, you know, seriously, if you, if, you, if, you, yeah. if you try to look at it like a room full of people, would you enter that room? Probably not. <laughs> That's a really, really good way of putting it. <laughs> this is what I say to my son, because he's like, mum, I really want to be on social media. I'm like, Look at these comments. Do you want to hang out with these people? It's like, mm, okay. The other tough thing about social media now for with young people, I've got a 14-year-old at home, a 12-year-old and a 6-year-old, is, Kate, you and I remember an era where you could you could sort of screw up, you could mess up. Um, you had friends, family to support you. Sometimes it was in public, but it was only in the neighbourhood. Now it's all there. <laughs> can't escape it it's impressive oh my god it's just it's an impossible pressure and it doesn't allow for evolution for education cancel culture you you can be destroyed before you've even had a chance to blink and think you know Um, we talked about it recently on an episode of of this with um skin from skunk and nancy yeah and and she was saying exactly the same it's like you know you you have to be allowed to have a have a view have somebody challenge it and maybe inform it and then allow that view to change and not be burnt you know yeah taken down and you know put the gates of hell for it because it can be Also, also i hate the prejudice I really mean this. I hate it. Look, I'm, I, I grew up working class in Tottenham. I'm very proud of my parents, my mother. She didn't go to university or anything like that, who raised me, the folk that I, you know, white and black that I grew up with. And I'm blessed in some ways to have gone to university, got two degrees, got to Harvard Law School. But I hate the way that these mediums... Um, you know, they sort of really sneer at working class people sometimes in the way they express, they favour folk who are, you know, got lots of degrees and all the rest of it. I think it's sort of, and cancel culture is a bit that, you sort of jump all over someone because they've made one word but one mistake and it makes you feel empowered at that moment. It's sort of, it's really shit to be honest. It's not saying, oh, hang on a minute, have you considered this by way of a view? It's just going, your shit, you're wrong. I write about it in the book. And the other thing that I did some research on was the narcissism index, <laughs> which is <laughs> in which uh, this, a lot of this stuff's being done in the States. But narcissism amongst young people is just going through the roof. You know, we're, we're breeding these mini Trumps. <laughs> in which it's about me, myself, and I, yeah. you know, not about, I mean, that's the problem with populism, which is what Trump's in. You, it's kind of shit when you become unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, talk about that because actually we, we are speaking in a week of a year that none of us will remember for anything good. However, it, it, in its 11th month, 11th month um, almost its 11th hour, within the space of a week, we've seen a vaccine and a new president of the United States of America. Do, do you think that 2020 has a cat and hell's chance of redemption well it's that whole business isn't it which we kind of know in our hearts that you you it, 
you've got to hit the real valleys to kind of know the mountaintop, right? And to know when things are great. And this has been a brutal year. I think it's been a brutal period. And very sadly, because of our economy, we've got some more tough times ahead. But you've got to cherish these moments where the, the, your, your fellow human beings just strike out for something different. Uh, so big up to those scientists swatting to get a oh, amazing and cracking it, which means, let's say, say what that means politically. I mean, I was saying to people, by the way, you can write off 2021, we'll still be living with this, we'd still be having to go into the lockdown and out again and bouncing around unpredictability. It completely sorts that out, which means that I would predict that, assuming they can bring forward the vaccine, that the crisis will be over sometime between Easter and summer next year, which is fantastic. And we've got Joe Biden and more importantly, almost Kamala Harris, the first female in the White House. And it yeah. makes me emotional because my daughter, my beautiful six-year-old daughter, you know, can look at Kamala Harris who looks like her and dream dreams that weren't possible before it. So it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful silver lining on a very, very yeah. bitter... And it is, it is powerful for through the eyes of your daughter to be seen, to be seen somewhere that is important, to be leading. And I, I, I know, I mean, I grew up as much as I never subscribed to her politics. I was raised in Thatcher's Britain. I saw a woman lead this country. It wasn't until I went to work that I, I, I experienced anything that felt like sexism. It was a shock. <laughs> Honestly, truly, it was. I, I had lots of views about her politics, but she was a strong woman. Uh, in fact, I'm looking forward to the next scene, season of The Crown starting in a couple of weeks. Gillian Anderson. <laughs> the Queen, you know, two <laughs> strong women. But we got that. And you sort of knew, you know, we know enough about America because so much American culture, you know, is consumed by us, that that slightly cowboy swagger that old style misogyny is pretty deep in that society. And actually, Hillary Clinton experienced some of it. And this is a real breakthrough moment. Not only is she a woman, but she's a woman of color. It's a massive breakthrough in the way that America can swing between these hugely progressive mm. moments and then these very, very um, tough, depressing times. I mean, I mean, you're you're a man of law, Harvard educated. Legally, does does Trump have a case or a hope in hell? Not uh, a chance in hell. I mean, <laughs> come on, he's got senior Republicans, George Bush, even Mike Pence has disappeared. His vice president has he know. been terminated? <laughs> uh, um, you know, come on, it's actually quite sad. We've had American presidents give amazing concession speeches. You can't win every fight. It's just sort of throwing throwing mud at it because you didn't get your way, really. And it's, it's but it's also it's incredibly indulgent on an egotistical level, which will come as very little surprise with a character like Trump. But he's holding the country to ransom. There's never going to be enough electoral uh, votes available for him to change the outcome of this. So it, it, it's just it, who, who gains from this? Not the American people. Absolutely. I mean, I I think that. He, he gains he gain he gets to sort of not really come to terms with the fact that the american people rejected him um he gets to kind of live and fight another day but worse than that and this is what's really depressing it's sort of stoking it so that um you know you create a context in which there could be civil unrest on the streets and this is what i remember i'll never forget kate you might remember this Back in 2011, riots started in my constituency and then they ripped across the country for four days. And I'll never forget after that Saturday night of burning and looting and, you know, the police being out, you know, just losing control. That Sunday morning, I had to walk up Tottenham High Road, walk back down again, face the global world's media and condemn it. Now, I could have stoked it. I could have said, this is fine. It's all right to burn things down because, um, you know, a young man had lost his life. But I had to condemn it. And that's called leadership. Um, 
And, you know, so, and that's what Trump's not able to do. You also posted, which I found riveting, very early footage of Joe Biden. And this was him. St- I mean, this was a man with a mission and a cause, not his own. He was fighting, fighting for the unrepresented, the underdogs. And actually, you really turned me on to Joe Biden. <laughs> In as much as I went into a YouTube rabbit hole trying to find more. And that's, that's, that's a great use of your platform because oh, yeah. I needed to understand 50, what, what you know, those 50 years in politics, you know. What's it done? What's it about? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. And you, you obviously have a lot of time for Joe Biden. I can see that from the way you I've met him a couple of times, not not at any length, um, but I've met him a couple of times. Um, and he is uh, sort of uh, personable, charming, empathetic kind of guy. Um he cares and of course he cares i mean he's a man who's had massive tragedy in his life you know oh. more, more than more than most of us to be honest losing your wife losing your daughter losing your son um tragedy and it, it and you know you often find when people survive those sorts of things um leave to one side the intellect or whatever the politics is but that empathy bit that business to to walk in other people's shoes he's got that in spades uh, the absolute opposite, I've got to tell you, Donald Trump. Um, but what he was doing in the video that I posted was he was condemning apartheid at a time when a lot of people in our own country and other, were looking in the other direction and not really seeing, um, you know, Mandela, many of the black community in South Africa for who they were, human beings. Uh, it's just back in the mid-80s, and that's why I posted it. And he's, he's not just condemning it. I mean, he is, uh, you've got to watch it. You've got to watch it. This is a he's man. He's the task, this sort of yes. Yes. complete kind of injustice. Uh, impotence and injustice. Uh, yeah. He's using, do you know what he's doing? He's using, I know people don't like the phrase so much, but he's using what the millennials are talking about now. He's using his white privilege. Because there he is a senator in the end, in the world's great superpower. And he's he's using that. And I understand that because I've got political capital. You know, if I stand up in the House of Commons and, you know, bring to bear a certain kind of moral force, it does have traction. That's the truth of it. Because the House of Commons is one of the best, biggest amphitheatres in the world. Now, if I do that every week... Uh, it will go pretty damn quickly. So you can't use it every week. But it's that business of using that plan. And I've always felt very strong. Some people say, oh, you're a bit passionate. Oh, you're a bit angry. And I'm like, come on. Have you been into a barbershop in Tottenham? (laughs) (laughs) People would give their right arm. I mean, a load of Britain would give their right arm just to have half an hour telling it as it is in the House of Commons. You know, the average taxi driver in London but they have <laughs> does every journey, yeah. Absolutely. So use the platform. And I've always felt I'm going to use this platform on behalf of the people I represent and people like them. There's a whole range of issues I don't talk about. I've got views on, but they don't matter so much to, to the sort of people I represent. But but use the platform. Or you've got a platform. You know, we're privileged to have it. Use it to make the world a better place. Inform, inspire, educate. I love these little sound bites. Maybe we should get you working for the Labour Party. (laughs) (laughs) Stay on the line at the end of the call, David. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as you know, I've been reading your book, Tribes, and it struck me uh, whilst I was reading it how something that seems arguably inconsequential at the time can go on to become life-changing. And for you, that was being a choir boy. Yes, it was. I mean, your fortunes changed, your life changed because you sang in a choir. You, it opened you up to a world of privilege and education that would never have been open to you. And I mean, you ended up at boarding school with, and then on to Harvard. And you, you are a man of so many firsts. And I, I think, would I be fair in saying that you can trace it all back to that 
rather inconsequential talent. Absolutely. It's that, oh God, you're going to make me quite emotional now. I'm felt, you know, I'm just a bit overtired, but I'm feeling emotional again. So it's that business of, um, well, let's go back. This is a moment in the early 1980s in which a couple of things are going on. Alid Jones has got to number one in the charts with Walking in the Air. Um, people are banging on about the Vienna Boys Choir. Um, um, and my my old mum is has found herself in a really nice church in Tottenham where she gets on with the priest and the priest is close to the local 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 primary school. I had at the time a fantastic music teacher called Mrs. Shepherd, who really believed in me and was just wonderful. And I was just singing and enjoying myself. And between her, the priest, my mum, uh, they said, David's got a good voice. He should go for voice trials. Um, I, I, I wasn't sure I knew what voice trials were at the time. <laughs> I had never really left London. I'd certainly never been on an inner city train. Um, and I had I had two voice trials, one at uh, Southern Minster in Nottinghamshire and the other at Peterborough. I chose, Pe I got into both. I chose Peterborough because it was nearer to London. I was worried I'd miss home. Um, and when I got to Peterborough, and I've got to be honest, a lot of people are pretty down on the city of Peterborough. For me, Peterborough was paradise. It still is. Because there were avenues and trees and picket fences. It felt like the States to me compared well, you, you write about it like almost you'd stepped into Narnia. <laughs> I had no idea. I'd just gone three miles up the road to Enfield. <laughs> it's all there. It's all there. I had no idea. Um, but, you should try Barnet. I hear they've got big roads. It's that bit that people forget that you can... Yeah, you're growing up in London, but and it's a big global city, but London can also be a really parochial city in the sense that I didn't really leave the N17. Um, I grew up with Irish, uh, you know, West Indians, um, uh, white Cockneys and a few Asians. My best mate was 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 um, Maliki Byrne, who, who was a traveller. I mean, that and it was a very small community. Um, so Peterborough transformed everything you know i ended up at this boarding school it was a state boarding school it was a very good school it wasn't always easy you know there was definitely i was the only black kid at the school so it wasn't always easy there was a lot of racism at that time was, this is the era of alf garnet and jim davison jokes and whenever you see a black person they're being mocked apart from daley thompson and tessa sanderson uh, why is that why is that by the way why sorry? are they the outliers why why were they not mocked that's not fair <laughs> Listen, I mean, no, it's fair. They come on, and we'd all be cheer cheering, and they wore the British flag and stuff. But, but so, but in the end, it was a very Christian environment, very pastoral. I, I did have musical ability, and I really, really flourished. And I guess the other thing I'd say is, I left Tottenham at a time when Tottenham was going up in flames. Tottenham riots, 1985, PC Blaylock, hat to death. It was terrible, mm. and. Um, you know, and my parents' marriage was running into the sand. Uh, my dad left actually shortly after I got to Peterborough. Uh, I never saw him again. He left when I was twelve. So it was, it was, it was just one of those moments, and I feel like I was very, very lucky. And I, I you know, you asked me that, and it's, it's why my politics is like it is, because I've got friends who ended up in prison, who ended up in, it, with mental health issues, and literally. It was just a roll of the dice, and I could have been I could have been on that as well. Do you, do you think about where you might have ended up, and also are there any other moments in your life that have kind of mirrored that inconsequential, seemingly but magnificent opportunity with hindsight experience? Most of the moments that I've had have come by. Oh, so many. I mean, I I ended up at Harvard Law School. Everyone said, "Oh, he went to Harvard Law School." Guess how he knows Obama and all this. Was... The only reason I went to Harvard Law School was because there were some black kids ahead of me taking the Inns of Court School of Law, this is the British Bar School, to court because they were being routinely failed. And I thought, 
<laughs> I've got this far and I'm not going to be able to succeed. So I better have a plan B. And there was a show on TV at the time, LA Law. Oh, yes. Which I loved. And it had loved. a young black guy in it called Blair Yes, Blair Underwood. Underwood. I want to be him. So that's yes. what I applied to law school. <laughs> and then I got in and they said, look, you'd be the first black Briton to come. You've got to come. Um, so you know, I, I'm loving that your kind of life mentors so far have been Alan Jones and Blair Underwood. <laughs> it's all, it's all so it's it's a bit random. It shouldn't be like that, really, but it is a bit random. I mean, I did I did have the, the you know the gift of the gab, and I was I was ambitious, ambitious not to live the life of my parents, which was hard. You know, I, I was. I, I, my, my, both Especially my after your dad left. I mean, your, your mum was left with five kids. Absolutely. But both of my parents actually died at 67. And I have got this side of me, my, my wife can't stand it, where I'm sort of a bit sort of, um, you know, I work very hard all the time, almost because I think that I haven't got much, you know, you know I'm not going to have as long as they have. Not really fully comprehending that they were... You know, their diet, the stress they experienced, all that stuff which contributed to not having a long life is, is not the same as me, but it's in, in my head sort of thing. And actually, friends that I've got at university whose parents are sort of still jumping off ski slopes well into their 80s, some of this is class. It really is. It how, is. How and it's, it out. It's, it's economic welfare. I'm talking all about me, Kat. I want you to talk about you. No, the, the whole, I don't think you understand. The podcast is about the guest. <laughs> just, I just fire the questions out. <laughs> I, I love that you can see these almost sliding door opportunities that go on to shape and inform um, who we become. Um, I wonder where you think you might have been had you not made the choir. Oh, I'm really clear about that, you know. Um, my parents' marriage was dire. There was lots of fighting at home. Tottenham was in a terrible place with um, the police stopping and searching kids, deep suspicion between second generation West Indian immigrants uh, and the police. Um, and there were real problems in the schools, the local schools, there was chronic underachievement. I'm really quite clear I would have ended up probably inside, certainly caught up in crime. Um, and um, and probably, you know, I did struggle when my dad left emotionally um, and psychologically, but I had some fantastic mentors, uh, both within my family and teachers and things, uh, youth workers who took an interest in me. I'm just not sure it would have been quite that story if I'd stayed in Tottenham. I do have friends, by the way. You know, one of my great friends is a head teacher at one of the local schools, wonderful guy, Patrick Cozier. Um, uh, great friends doing great things. So I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom, but I'm just not sure that young David Lammy, uh, I think I, I, I would have been emotionally a bit, I was terribly oversensitive kid. I really, I mean, I, People, I mean, I can't really believe the guy I've become because in, in politics, you've got to have a really thick skin. And oh, I've, acquired, I've acquired the hide of a donkey. But that was not young David Lammy. I mean, any of my teachers or friends will tell you, I was, you know, I burst into tears, um, get very hurt, and very upset, very, very quickly. So it would have been a very different story, which is why I always pay tribute to the people of Peterborough, I'm going to get emotional now. Um, oh. To the folk of East Anglia, um, uh, to you know all that I got from being a choral scholar, and by the way, to a bit later on in my life when I did get into Harvard Law School, to the Jewish lawyers um, that, that I met that gathered around me and helped fund my ability to go there because it cost forty-five grand and I didn't have forty-five grand. But, you, but well, yeah, who does? And, and, and help me go. So, you know, I, I'm a very loyal kind of person. If someone's been good to me, it's why I, you know, I still stand with the Jewish community. But if someone's been good to me, um, I, I find it very hard to not, you know, walk with them however far I've got to walk with them. I think that I, I've never been good with extremes. I'm definitely a bridge builder. Um, 
you know, of course I speak up for uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic communities in this country. Of course I do that. But let's be clear, I'm a bridge builder. And in a sense, the juxtaposition of Tottenham and Peterborough made me that. I'm, I'm insistent that I'm English. You know, when I lived in the States, I missed Ribena, I missed Walker's Crisps, I missed tea, I missed British humour. Um, you know, growing up with things like Little and Large and Terry and June. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, so so I, I, I don't like, and I haven't really ever been comfortable with extremism, whether it's on the left, um, in my own party, or whether it's on the right, and I'm afraid on the right, it has infected the conservative parties as we've seen with the Republicans. Uh, it's the kind of what's been happening in these times. Uh, it's become a very dirty word to be in the center, you're a centrist. Um, but, but my politics is definitely somewhere between Tottenham and Peterborough, which puts me definitely you know, in the center left ground of the political spectrum. And I'm very, very comfortable there. You know. My wife comes from a white middle class, some might say posh background. I'm very lucky I married upwards um, <laughs> uh, to a woman that, looked, you know, a very beautiful woman. And I, my, my kids are mixed heritage and, you know, that's our family. Yeah, your children are having a very different upbringing um, to the one you enjoyed. Yeah, I do struggle um, a bit. <laughs> yeah. I didn't feel entitled to anything. You know, Christmas, you know, a matchbox was, <laughs> you know, my kids and their friends that, you know, my God, compared to what I could have, it's huge. Yeah. I, and I was often told that I can't do something. When I said to my careers teacher that I wanted to be a barrister, remember Mrs. Parker, I was about 15, 14, and she looked at me and she said, look, I'm sorry, David, I just don't think... Um, I don't think you're going to be embarrassed, she said. But let's look and see if there are some jobs that you can do. And she she talked about me becoming a, um, a paralegal. Uh, and then she said, but do you know what? I think you make a wonderful fireman. And I thought, where's that come from? I, you know, uh, there was London's Burning was on TV at the time. But I thought, you know what, me lumbering up a ladder to save you if your house is on fire. I'm a little bit on the heavy side. <laughs> I think I think that's the, the giving people that level of you know when you're a kid you look up to those people they are if you respect authority they are authoritarians they're experts and when they're telling you no and I'd much the same no be a typist not a journalist no like, <laughs> how absolutely dare you by the way well, once when I did break down on TV it was when I was being interviewed by a journalist called Jackie Long for Channel 4 News, and it was just after the Grenfell fire. And I was talking about Khadija Say, a young woman, 24, very, very talented, who I'd, I'd become a friend of because she worked for my wife. My wife took her in as an intern, um, nurtured her, and she was really going off. My wife's an artist, and she was going to become a, a, a fantastic artist, and she died. And the reason I cried is because I talked about her agency and I was recalling being Khadija at Khadija's age. And I knew, and I know you'll understand this, that business of when you're working class and someone in a suit or a uniform tells you to do something, you do it. And her and her mother were basically told to stay put. And they stay put and they died burnt to death as a consequence. And I, I was sort of, as you were saying that, I was sort of thinking of, had she just run out of that, run out, you know, just run, she'd still be alive today. And it's, it goes back to that point you're making of, of, you know, sometimes these moments of feeling a bit like an imposter, but these moments where your life can take a different turn. We are who we are. Um, and in the end, inside, I'm, I'm a sort of working class boy made good. How 
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are renowned for your your determination to fight for justice, and you have um, uh, you have no hesitation in picking up somebody else's cause and battling on behalf of others. But I wondered, as fearless as you seem when when championing others, what actually stops you in your tracks and scares you? What are you frightened of? I used to be really afraid of the police and ending up in prison. I mean, seriously, I spent most of my teens and my 20s worried about that because it was so real I think um, and vivid in Tottenham um, what am I afraid of I, well I'm afraid of you know screwing up embarrassing the people that I represent that, you know I, I, I really don't want to do that and then there are things that I'm really crap at I've, I've got a slight phobia of birds birds <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> kind of scare me which is ridiculous um, um i mean it goes back to childhood it, my dad bought some buttery guards and these were the your dad was a taxidermist he was a taxidermist and i love taxidermy i love love animals but he bought some budgies in those days he used to have those sort of gas paraffin heaters anyway overnight this is one christmas where we got eight budgets and i was so looking forward to waking up the next morning they were and and one by one they sort of dropped each time. So it's just, oh, God. Uh, it just, it just stuck with me so i've sort of got a thing about birds um i i i i i, I don't drive you know I, I have got a driving license but believe me you do not want me on the roads uh, so I don't drive. I'm very much a Londoner in that sense. I'm always on the tube, always on the buses, always walking. Um, so uh, those aren't things that scare me, but they're things that I can't do. Um, yeah, I think that's a summary. Do, do you ever feel insecure? Do you worry about oh, the future? Well, so, so I would say, I mean, I'm, 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 look, I'm, you know, creeping towards 50 now. And I definitely think something changed for me around 2008, 2010. And I think what changed for me was one, somebody I knew and respected and hugely became president of the United States of America, which is a big deal, audacious and bold and amazing. Um, it's historical. Yeah, and despite being the president, has maintained his friendship with me beyond politics, which is wonderful. 
Uh, more profound than that, uh, my parents died. Um, and there's something about being an orphan, particularly my mother dying, who was like my best friend. Um, that, that really, really um, touched me. And, and I think the other thing that happened was um, my, um, I, my, my youngest daughter is, we, we, we adopted. Um, which to, I don't talk about it that much because it's her story, not mine. But all I can say is that it's by far the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. Um, way out ranks politics. Um, and, um, you know, she means the world to me and her mother and, and, uh, and our boys. And so uh, what I'm saying is that I did have a huge imposter syndrome when I came into politics like a lot of working class people, a lot of women, you know, what the hell am I doing here? I was not connected in the way that a lot of MPs are. You know, my father and father were not MPs. I was not dropping Labour leaflets when I was five. Uh, I do not have a union leader as a best chum. And I came in in the era of the Miliband brothers and uh, the Balls and Cooper, all these people who had such big connections. They'd worked for people. You know, I was a nobody. Um, and so I had a massive imposter syndrome, you know, being a young black man, junior minister, getting um, civil servants to do what you asked them to do. And it was tough. The media can be brutal. But today, uh, 20 years later, uh, as I say, round about the middle of that period, you know, you become, I've stopped becoming, I've become, it doesn't mean I can't learn anything, but you know what I mean? I'm, I'm very secure in my own skin, what I stand for. I'm not looking for public approval. I, 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 I spent a long time on the back benches and loved every second of it. Um, and I, it's great being on the front benches. I want Keir Starmer to do very well, but I'm not in the business of just sort of crawling up the greasy pole. I've got, shed loads going on in my life. My wife's very successful. I'm financially secure. All those things matter. And I suppose make me the kind of confident, uh, not, not, not the anxious person uh, that I certainly was when I was so much younger, always worrying about what people thought. And you ring, you ring fence three momentous events in your life there. Um, being friends with somebody that you met at Harvard, who went on to be the leader of the free world, um, Barack Obama, the adoption of your daughter and the loss of your parents. I mean, that that, that must have been a very um, emotionally charged time at best. Oh, God, it was. My mother was dying of ovarian cancer, which is a horrible cancer. Mm. They sometimes call it the silent cancer. It's not silent. There are symptoms, but you've really got to be um, in tune and not being, as some women can be, getting on with it, really, and not, 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 not not noticing the back pain, um, the bloating and all the rest of it that you start to feel. Anyway, she she got the diagnosis. The cancer was the size of a grapefruit. Um, it was stage three, sort of two years um, uh, life expectancy. Um, she had three rounds of chemo. She was desperate to survive for my, um, my wife was pregnant with our second, our second, um, uh, Theo, she did survive to see Theo, and oh. um, and I just I was a young minister, and I decided that I would um, do every hospital appointment with her, go to every chemo visit with her, and I did that. Um, and my my wife at the time had decided that she was going to because um, uh, Barack had. Um, decided he wanted to run for president she got me to ring him up and say look can 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 nicola follow you around she wants to do a portrait um and he agreed to that she didn't do a portrait in the end she did a whole series of work on the campaign which is you know in the met and the national portrait gallery in washington and things it did very well but i mean it was it was it was um it was it, it, it captured a very historical moment in time and it's available to look at the on the internet just oh Google. thank you, thank um, you. It's, it's, it's a, my wife's name nicola green by the way nicola green um, yes google yeah. nicola green put in obama next to it you'll also get the dalai lama she's yeah. she's she's worked with some incredible very people talented, talented woman i'm very very fortunate but but um my mum was so <laughs> excited that he was running and I remember her dying 
and saying, you know, wanting me to bring the big newspapers into the hospice. She was reading the Times, <laughs> Guardian, you know. Uh, she, my mother only ever read the Mirror, and she wanted to <laughs> words about Obama. Um, and, and then she said, look, Dave, do you think you could go and take some photos and bring them back? And, and I, I, I took my whole team out um, to Chicago campaigning and to go and see. I mean, that sounds really grand. It, there were three of us. But, you know, uh, and she didn't live to see it. She didn't live to see it. But it was it was a very... But you know what? She lived with the possibility of it, and that in itself is exciting. It would happen, and it did happen. And as I say, those those things. It was one of those moments when mum was dying, second son being born, uh, Barack was coming back all at the same time, Um, and that was a that 2008 period was a sort of transformative. um, Actually, Labour also. We were running into the sand. Tony Blair left. Gordon Brown came in. Uh, the economy went on the slide. We had the crash. So it's one of those times um, um, which which just wasn't so much was happening and it changed me. And, you know, there will be people listening for whom they're not just dealing with lockdown. They've lost their job or their parents died or COVID-19. It's all coming together, 2020. And I, I was having one of those moments, you know, back then and they are you do sort of if you get through it you're sort of not quite the same um, I mean it's, it's kind of hard to fathom isn't it if you'd put yourself back at Harvard I know you weren't studying alongside Barack um, you met as part of the black uh, uh, yes exactly from Harvard powerful little clubs had you ever conceived or imagined at that time as to what was to come I mean could you did you dare to dream that big back then what I would say is so i went to harvard you know la law (laughs) in california after i after i finished at harvard and it didn't work out you know i desperately missed home i ended up quite depressed i ended up on prozac um you you know it wasn't i wasn't in the best place um why do you think that was david what was it that wasn't you it's called it's really simple there's a lot of it called loneliness and sort of slightly you know um losing your 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 bearing a bit you know um and also what i was saying you know i left harvard the most confident i've ever been a confidence that sort of propelled me to work in california propelled me to stand at the age of 27 to be a member of parliament so i was i had i left with huge confidence but like a lot of people who've got that sort of big confidence and their ego is riding quite high underneath it all it's a little bit fragile so you carry those two things at the same time i guess um so i on one level leaving harvard i could i could take on the world it's just amazing i come so far really from from you had 11 year old boy that you started on <laughs> you know 11 year old jones that got the choral scholarship i've come quite far oh yes we've got the house of there's the vote girls. oh dear yes. it's the voting that means there's a vote i think let me just have a check i've just got to check to see if it's a vote or if it's um should explain that we are talking to you in your house uh, your offices at the house yeah house. it doesn't look like it's a vote it's basically these days they ring the bell to say that this the business has changed from one thing to another thing um so that they clear the commons out and sanitize it and then some people come back in so it's not a vote it's fine it's a COVID cleanup. It's a COVID. COVID, it's, COVID. <laughs> it's the cleaners, basically. <laughs> Got excited over nothing. They're going in with their anti bag. <laughs> okay, my final question to you, David, before I let you get back to the proper job of, of helping to run this country um 
If you could go back in time and change or reverse a decision that would ultimately make the world a better place, a, a chance to correct or rewrite our history books, what would it be and why? Why would it be so important to you? Look, um, I know it's probably a bit predictable, but in the end, um, my mother used to say to me when I was feeling sorry for myself, she used to say this to all of us, or five of us, um, live up to your ancestors' prayers. And I say that to my kids. That's and, a lovely thing. And what she, she never said this, but what I think she meant was however hard you're finding it, David, there's been a hell of a lot of progress to get you here. And in the end, I am the descendant of enslaved people. Uh, people that were ripped from the continent of Africa. And anyone who is taken away from your parents, your village, your town, you lose your language, you lose your culture, your kids are born in another place and they don't know who they were. It creates a terrible mess, a terrible pickle, and it's at the heart of some of the pain of African-Americans, of West Indian Caribbean people, and also some of our joy and our humor and our, um, and our sacrifice. But if I could go back in time and change that and change the scientific racism that set it up and created a pecking order that put white middle-class men at the top, and I do emphasize middle class because <laughs> they weren't treated. And well. Can you please emphasize men? Yeah, because <laughs> women didn't have much of a voice then either. <laughs> because whilst they were enslaving uh, black Africans, they weren't treating white working class women or men terribly well back home. But white middle class Europeans, not just in this country, France, Spain. If I could go back and change that, of course I would, because a lot of the hardship that we've still got in the world and we saw it, we've seen it in the States this year, both in the joy of Kamala Harris being elected, but also in the terrible pain and murder of George Floyd and all that bloodshed. It's all because of that moment. So that's what I would change. And, and how do you think the world would be a better place? Oh, we'd be, more, we'd be closer to being what we bloody well know we are, which is human beings. <laughs> you know, totally, yeah. Just human beings who bleed uh, blood that's the same as each other and all the rest of it's hokey. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I love it. I love someone else's culture. I love someone else's food. Uh, I'm very respectful of someone else's religion or whatever. But in the end, um, you know, wherever you are in the world, if you're into football, you know, you can kick a ball around and it's the universal game. Humour is humour wherever it is. You, you know, any, we'll all laugh at someone, unfortunately, they slip on a banana skin. You know, that's the stuff of real life, isn't it? You know, we've been talking about the ups and downs, particularly grief, tragedy, uh, the stuff that makes all of us cry um, um, or grow up um, or feel insecure. Uh, that's the real stuff of life. And, and um, it is. the rest of it's, you know, it's the stuff that's got in between that we've created that's created division and stuff. David, thank you so much for talking to me. I've been um, a follower and, and a fan for a long time and to spend an hour in your company has honestly been a joy. Please stay where you are in politics. Do not go anywhere uh, because we need you. We need voices like yours. Keep fighting the great fight. Thank you so much. This has been a very special afternoon here in the Commons. Yeah. I better get back to work. Yes, go and do some work now, will you? I'm <laughs> transport in London with the Mayor of London, so I better go. Well, you see, I think chatting with me is probably a lot more fun, but then I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> David, yeah, let me thank you. to dinner as well, please. Thanks, I'd love and that. Oh, and, you know. and, yes, I will. Yeah. I will. We can talk red shirts, blue shirts. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. and please give my very best to your family and your, your good lady wife, who's thank incredibly talented. Do look her work up online. Thank it's you. great stuff. Great. Thank you, David. Great. Take care.
That's it for this week's White Wine Question Time. I do hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we have. If you have, please do find the time to rate and review us. It truly does help other people to discover the podcast. As always, this show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Richard Hatherall for Yahoo UK. And editing is by Callum Goddard-Mucklow. Our music, as always, is provided by Andy Bell. We'll be back with you next week with another fascinating guest. Until then, stay safe and do as we always try to do, even though we haven't touched a drop today. Make sure you drink responsibly. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.